It's the Dead Lady Show podcast. The Dead Lady Show celebrates women, both overlooked and iconic, who achieved amazing things against all odds while they were alive. And we do it through women's history storytelling on stage here in Berlin and beyond. I'm Katie Derbyshire. Hi, Katie. And I'm Florian. Florian Dozens, in fact. And together we co-founded The Dead Lady Show. We're taking care of the introductory duties in this episode and sitting in for our podcast producer and host, Susan Stone, because she's going to be presenting our feature Dead Lady. Right. Susan is bringing us the story of a female electronic music pioneer from the days before synthesizers and home computers. Here she is presenting the life of B.B. Barron. A long time ago, in a city far, far away, I had the grand opportunity to meet and interview the first lady of electronic music. It was 2004 in Los Angeles, but but still. (laughs) And now it's my great pleasure to introduce B.B. Barron to many, or, or most of you. Electronic music as we know it would not exist without B.B. and her husband Louis, nor would the sounds we associate with outer space. Together, the Barons composed and created the first electronic music, or electroacoustic, feature film soundtrack. They're also credited with creating the tape loop, and some say the audio book, though I kind of disagree with that one. <laughs> Bibi was born Charlotte May Wind in 1925 in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and grew up partly in North Dakota, where her parents ran an Army-Navy surplus store. She was an only child and excelled at music, studying composition, playing piano, and singing, despite an ongoing hearing problem. She spends a year studying musicology in Mexico, then earns a master's degree in political science. In 1946, she is back in Minnesota and dating a nice enough guy. And then she meets his more creative and bohemian brother, Louis. Louis Barron is freshly returned himself from Mexico, where he's been subsisting on beans and rice and trying to write a play. You know the type. (laughs) He's 26, studied music, and has a keen interest in electronics. Charlotte is 21, and what she really loves is the avant-garde, and soon also Louis. They marry in 1947. As a wedding gift, they receive one of these. Has anyone ever seen one of these before? Anybody? Anybody? This is a reel-to-reel tape machine, by the way. Uh, so it's the first. They received one of the first ever reel-to-reel tape recorders. It was German-made, uh, a machine that was acquired by a cousin working for the Minnesota Mining and Manufacturing Company, what we know now as 3M. And this connection supplied them with the best in audio tape and equipment for much of their career. They move to Northern California, and in San Francisco, they meet Anais Nin, the, yeah, the Cuban-French writer known for her erotica, her many husbands, friends, and lovers, including Henry Miller, John Steinbeck, Edmund Wilson, Gore Vidal, and James Agee. Anais Nin is reading her dream-inspired prose poem, House of Incest, at a bookstore, and Bibi and Louie ask if they can record her. Bibi is actually already a fan. Anais says yes. After a 10-day marathon recording session, they splice everything together by hand and create the masters for two audiobook records. All that I know is contained in this book, written without witness, an edifice without dimension, a city hanging in the sky. So they then up sticks to New York and open a studio. They record more authors, including Aldous Huxley and Tennessee Williams. 
they press the readings onto red vinyl under the sound portraits label. Now these records sell for $25, which is quite a lot at the time, and they become collector's items, but they're really ahead of their time. They don't find distribution, and the Barons don't see much money from it, which is a tape loop of itself, as you'll hear. <laughs> they acquire more recording equipment, and they become the go-to guys and gals for recordings in the avant-garde scene. Now, in 1948, mathematician uh, Norbert Wiener at MIT publishes the groundbreaking book called Cybernetics, or Control and Communication in the Animal and the Machine. So this introduced the term cybernetics that we know now, uh, and it was very influential in uh, robotics and other studies. Now, it suggests that there are certain natural laws of behavior that apply to both animals and electronic machines. Louis reads it, and he starts applying the ideas to audio circuits. He starts experimenting with building vacuum tube circuits. He places them in patterns that control the electricity flow, and this produces tones like this. So he makes them with different kinds of pitch and volume, all with these tubes, and after recording the tones, the barons manipulated the tape. They played it backwards, they added echo, they slowed the sounds down, sometimes 100 times. And some of these techniques we still use today. Bibi is entranced by Anais Nin and the glamorous bohemian art scene in Greenwich Village. Louis and Bibi appear several times, actually, in two volumes of the seven volumes of Anais Nin's epic diaries. <laughs> Writing to a friend about the scene in the village, Nin describes Bibi like this. Another type of musician. I should actually do an Anais Nin voice, shouldn't I? How do I do that? Another type of musician. <laughs> there, how's that better? Okay. It's, it's kind of like how she might sound. I don't know. So. All right, I'll try it. Another type of musician is Bibi Barron, collaborating with her husband Louis, who composes with electronic sounds, a modern permutation of music born of physics. Bibi is a beautiful young woman with short dark hair, delicate features, and large soft dark eyes, who threads her way gracefully through mazes of lights, wires, buttons, turntables, oh, earphones, and tubes. She speaks softly, moves about in feminine clothes, unobtrusively sharing in the development of this new intricate science. I gotta remember to do this voice now every time. Okay, so uh, Bibi described herself as a protege of Anais. And did I read the part? Did I miss something? Yeah, I did. So the part that I missed is, so Anais actually dubbed Bibi, Bibi. She called her, so, so at the time, um, Bibi was known as Charlotte. She was young, petite, elfin, very sweet, very cute. And Anais naturally called her Bibi. <laughs> so Louis changed this to Bibi, and that is how she got her name. So, all right. So now Bibi described herself as a protege of Anais, who was 20 years older. And she remembered getting tips from her about how to get along with men and what men liked, saying, for a little North Dakota girl, this was a real revelation. <laughs> so the Barons and their new friends have parties in their apartments. And Anais Nin, again from her Diaries, Volume 5, uh, describes the scene this way. The front room of their apartment on 8th Street. I think this is Nico now. All right. <clears throat> Sorry. The front room of their apartment on 8th Street is completely filled with equipment. It is a jungle of electronic instruments, knobs, wires as complex as the control panel of an airplane. It is separated from the living room by soundproof glass. They keep open house, and I meet many people there. Joseph Campbell, Jean Erdman, William Styron, whose writing I do not like. <laughs> <laughs> 
Peggy Glanville Hicks, Barney Rossett, who does not like my work. <laughs> John Cage, whom I know many years, filmmakers and many others. With Louis and Bibi, I found an easy human relationship. They work with intense caring and live a varied, chaotic existence. Now, just for reference about this party guest, Jean Admin was a modern dance choreographer. Peggy Glanville Hicks was an Australian composer and musical director of the Museum of Modern Art. And Barney Rossett was a publisher who tried and failed to publish the uncensored version of Lady Chatterley's Lover. But he did publish Henry May uh, Miller's Racy Tropic of Capricorn. So it's the cream of the Bohemians. They all also attend an artist club and a bar frequented by all the notables of the time, including Martha Graham. And one Friday night, uh, Louis brings Norbert Wiener's book with him to read in cybernetics. And experimental composer John Cage comes up and asks him about it. So what proceeds is a very fortuitous conversation. Cage hires Louis and Beebe in 1952 to produce the Williams Mix with musician David Tudor. They spend about a year on it, and they start every day after a gourmet lunch cooked by John Cage, sounds great, uh, who received a sizable grant to fund the mix. That is what the score of the Williams Mix looks like. Anyone can read that? I don't know. So the Williams Mix is made up of around 600 pieces of audio tape of different kinds of sounds that are all recorded by Louis and Beebe. They splice them together according to a score made by Cage, and that's uh, partly according to the I Ching, which is the ancient Chinese divination used to find order in chance events. The final work is a little over four minutes at length. It's performed by eight reel-to-reel -reel tape recorders running simultaneously. <laughs> Yeah, so that's what that sounded like. <laughs> so Bibi remembered, Cage gave us total freedom. It was almost too much. There were no rules, no history of electronic music to relate to. Now, at the same time, using their circuits and audio tape, they also composed their first musical piece and entitled it Heavenly Menagerie, and some consider that the first ever composed piece of electronic music. It and the Williams Mix uh, premiere at a contemporary music festival in 1953. And here you see some of the circuitry systems. These are Louis' uh, note cards. The couple settled into a working system with Louis building the circuits and generating the sounds and Bibi sorting through, editing, and composing with the almost endless reels of processed tape, cutting it with a razor blade and splicing it back together in new combinations. There were days worth of tape that Louis didn't want to go through, so it was me or nobody, she remembered. More positively, she said, it was almost like a string quartet the way we were working. The Barons believed that the cybernetic circuits function almost like primitive life forms, brought to life and then killed by the electricity that powers them. They talk about them being aware and going through agony. Next up for them was a soundtrack for Bells of Atlantis, a short film made with Anais Nin and her husband Ian Hugo. Bells is a big hit, even reviewed in Vogue magazine. And here's an excerpt. My first vision of Earth was water-veiled. I am of the race of men and women who see all things through a curtain of sea. I remember my first birth in water. I sway and float, stand on boneless toes. All right, that's enough, Anais. Okay. <laughs> 
Yeah, so this, by the way, what we saw is, um, I think, the best copy available. The Museum of Modern Art owns the copyright, and according to Bibi, they lost their copies of the film. Uh, she loaned her copy to Anais, who lost it, and so on. So there are a couple of really bad video dubs floating around on YouTube, and that's what there is. The Barons then do several soundtracks for experimental film pioneer Maya Darren, and they're paid about $100 for each, so not a lot. Broke but determined, in 1955, Louis and Bibi read that the wife of MGM studio head Dory Sherry is having an art opening in New York, so they crash the party. <laughs> Bibi said, we really exercised what was called chutzpah. <laughs> uh, Dory Sherry, that's him on the right of this picture, with Kirk Douglas, Vincent Minnelli, and Lana Turner, uh, in describing their meeting called Louis and Bibi unkempt, they reminded him of the saying, he looks like an unmade bed. Um, <laughs> But he said they were also eager-eyed and intense. The barons asked him to listen to their music, but Sherry said, mm, no, I'm heading back to California. If you're ever in town, drop by. And he thought that was the end of it. The next week, they showed up at his office, <laughs> having decided immediately to drive across the country. Sherry said, I got a kick out of these two kids. Their persistence was just marvelous. Sherry signed them up to provide 20 minutes of sound effects for his high-budget space adventure, Forbidden Planet. The story is inspired by Shakespeare's The Tempest. It tells the tale of a... It is, it is. Aren't they all? It tells the tale of a mad scientist, his beautiful daughter, and a friendly robot. So that's Robbie, uh, Robbie right there. Very popular, Robbie the robot. He's probably the, the, the one who outlasted this whole thing. So with its Freudian references and uh, like monsters from the id, it is a fitting match for the unworldly sounds of the Baron's circuits. Working day and night for several months, they create an entire soundtrack, and Sherry opts to use it for the film, which was a daring decision for a Hollywood studio at the time. Here's Bibi remembering the process. He would look at the film and say, no, that needs music. I want to strengthen the fear in this situation. Can you do fear? Well, that's all we could do, really, is fear. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, as we see in the slide, that's the monster from the id, if anyone was wondering. <clears throat> now, uh, at the first screening, the audience broke into spontaneous applause at the sound of the spaceship landing. Remember, this is 1956. No one's heard anything like this before. Now, of course, this is like a second language, and it's thanks to Bibi. So um, here's Bibi again talking about their work, and it gives you a good picture of the Baron's ideas about the life of circuits that I mentioned before. In the scene where the scientist Morbius was dying himself, we used the circuit as it was dying, and you could tell it was going through hell. You could hear it doing it. You could even see it. <laughs> it would smoke, it would do all kinds of strange things. And if the weather was hot, these tubes are very sensitive to heat change. 
So imagine playing an instrument that self-destructed every time you played it. <laughs> so when Forbidden Planet is released in 1956, it's a hit. Everyone loves the soundtrack, except for the musicians' union. <laughs> since, since there were no actual instruments played, they are denied a composer's credit listed instead as contributing electronic tonalities. Uh, later, they are left off the film's Academy Award nomination for sound. Their work is credited to somebody else. But they have found fame. They're interviewed in Time Magazine, and they receive many new commissions. The Forbidden Planet soundtrack itself nets them $25,000, a lot of money at the time, not bad for now, and it keeps them afloat. Starting from 1957, they score ballet, Broadway productions, TV, commercial films, even an industrial light show. Most of them have space or futuristic themes. In 1958, MGM puts out the film From the Earth to the Moon, based on the Jules Verne book. They borrow liberally from the Forbidden Planet soundtrack. Bibi and Louie do not receive any money or credit. They start up a lawsuit, but they have no chance of taking on a major film studio and winning, so they drop it. Louis does a presentation of his circuits for the old artsy crowd and is poo-pooed by the serious composers and musicians who now consider him lowbrow. The barons are considered engineers rather than composers by some. Bibi becomes pregnant in 1959, though, and filmmaker Maya Darren throws a Greenwich Village baby shower in her apartment, which is decorated with masks, drums, and African textiles, which is described rather snidely as a voodoo shack by, guess who? Yes, it's Anais Nin. <laughs> She said, Maya Darren, a few years before she died, felt isolated from the community and tried to reintegrate her life in the most naive way imaginable by giving Bibi Barron a shower for her expected baby. A traditional shower like the housewives of the West give, with pink decorations, pink pastry, pink wrapped gifts. Because we loved Bibi, we all joined in the celebration. But Maya Darren could not permit this afternoon to remain innocent bourgeois, and the witch in her reappeared when she asked Bibi when she was expecting her child. Bibi told Maya, in a few weeks. Then Maya said, you are wrong, it is coming much sooner. I can tell by the constellations and the formation of the clouds. <laughs> Suggestible Bibi began having her child on the way down Maya's stairs. So I think you learn a lot about the cattiness of the avant-garde there, no? <laughs> Despite all that pink, Bibi gives birth to a son named Adam, and Anais Nin is his godmother. The Barron family unit moves to Los Angeles in 1961 to be closer to Hollywood. They think they will get to do the film score for The Haunting, based on the story The Haunting of Hill House by another fab dead lady, Shirley Jackson. They even have a contract written up, but due to continued issues with the Musicians Union, and the fact that MGM has blacklisted them for their Forbidden Planet lawsuit, they do not get the job. So they open a studio and manage to get a bit of work. <clears throat> Experimental short films, a theater production for Gore Vidal, a television commercial, which they always said they'd never do. The Barons were really stereotyped as producers of kooky sci-fi sounds, which they always saw themselves as belonging to the avant-garde, but they didn't fit in there anymore either. There are some very kitschy moments, including music for a short film called Space Boy and the backdrop to Seduction Through Witchcraft. <coughs> Orgies are ritualistic energy exchanges that provide the concentration of power needed for spellcasting. Witches and wizards crave energy 
and in fact are very much addicted to it in all forms. So, uh, Seduction Through Witchcraft was a record released in 1969 by occult vixen Louise Hübner, who dubbed herself the official witch of Los Angeles. But by this time, synthesizers were becoming prevalent if expensive. The sounds the barons took days to perfect could be created with keyboards and sequencers. Their way of working had become passe. 1962 to 1969 were rough years for the couple. They were frustrated and living on handouts from their parents, trying to jumpstart their beach career. We were fighting away as usual. <laughs> I think that was the thing that ended our marriage. So I want to issue a warning. <laughs> Be careful when you collaborate. <laughs> Take that to heart, people. <laughs> so having grown apart and tired of squabbling, Louie and Bibi split up in 1970. But they continued to collaborate on electronic music, still using the same equipment and setup they brought from New York for the next 20 years. Both remarry, Louis to Mary Ellen Cabot, a paralegal, and B.B. to screenwriter uh, Leonard Neubauer. They collaborate as well on the LP release of the Forbidden Planet soundtrack, which is eventually released on CD and later sampled on songs by hip-hop artists, including the notorious B.I.G. In 1989, though, Louis dies of cancer. His son, David, is six. So Louis's second wife, Mary Ellen, and B.B. do not get along at all. Uh, Mary Ellen works for a big law firm and denies Bibi access to the recordings and the equipment stored in the family's garage. Louis and Bibi's music begins to be forgotten. People think it was produced by a theremin. You know what a theremin is? That stick that goes, woo. Yeah, it is some similarities. But um, And other film composers made the claim that they were the first to compose an electronic film score. But some still remember. And in 1997, Bibi is given an award by the Society for Electroacoustic Music. She has many friends and fans in this community of musicians who dub her the first lady of electronic music. In 1999, Bibi is invited to US Santa Barbara's Center for Research in Electronic Art Technology, CREATE, and composes the six-minute piece, Mixed Emotions, using computer-generated sounds. So uh, this is Bibi's first foray into music since Louis died 10 years earlier, and it's her last one. Her hearing and health start to deteriorate, but she is still active in the arts. In 2004, I meet Bibi in LA, and I visit Louis Barron's son, David. Now, he shows me the stacks of, yeah, the stacks of decaying tape and old equipment baking in the hot garage. Bibi died in Los Angeles at 82 in 2008. The dusty rows of audio tape and equipment, the unheard barren compositions, as far as I know, they're still in that garage. My original recordings of BB from 2004 are also now missing in action. Is it our fate to be thwarted by technology? The revenge of those circuits and machines in agony? Who can know? What's important is that we remember her name and her work creating the sounds of the future. Thank you. That was Susan Stone on B.B. Barron, recorded live at Berlin's Akut with help from Huey Ines Remy. Back when live audiences were a thing. Remember that? Remember that, Katie? Oh, I remember. Hmm. 
Now, most of our dead ladies are from decades and eras past, but as you heard, Susan was able to meet Bibi in person and to talk to her in person, which is quite unusual for our subject matter. Susan's right here to tell us a bit more about Bibi. What was it like to meet her? Hey, Katie and Florian. Um, she was very protected in a sense when I first met her. She is, she was very beloved by the electronic music community, and this was a sort of a lot of men about. 40 years younger than her or something. <laughs> and um, so when I first interviewed her, she had a couple of them with her. And then the next interview, uh, she had a couple other guys with her. She really did not want to talk without them having a say, which was interesting. But yeah. along the way, she came out of her shell and she began to trust me. And um, we became really kind of like friends, which was wonderful. I met with her on another visit to Los Angeles. We went to an art museum. Um, we exchanged letters. And when I moved to Germany, we would still be in touch occasionally. Um, but then, yeah, unfortunately, she died in, in 2008. But it was very special. I mean, you really don't get the chance to spend time with a musical legend. How old was she when you met her? She was in her 80s. And, oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, explains the letters. <laughs> yes. Um, I mean, she did, I'm trying to think whether she really did much emailing. We would speak on the phone on occasion. And uh, um, yeah, I remember printing them in very large type, actually. <laughs> 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 um, she loved art and avant-garde things. And yeah, it was, um, it was really inspiring to spend time with someone like that. And she's, she's having a bit of a revival, right? There's a, in the sense that there's a documentary that features her out right now? Uh, yes, there is. I just watched it. Uh, she's in it with some other female pioneers of electronic music. It has this awesome name. It's called Sisters with Transistors. Yes. <laughs> Great. And uh, it's made by Lisa Rovner. And uh, it's weird. Lisa had actually contacted me a couple years ago wanting to use some of these interviews with BB in the film. And I had been looking for them for a long time. It is weird. Um, but some of my things are in storage on different continents, makes it tricky. And I never did find them. I think I mentioned this in the presentation that the archive of BB's life and works is not as thorough as it could be, unfortunately. And just like uh, the tapes that she and Louie worked on may still be sitting in a baking hot garage in Southern California, my recordings of her interview are probably sitting in a crawl space in, in Maryland, you know, <laughs> possibly getting cold and hot. I don't know. Um, so that is kind of frustrating. Um, but she did find another source, which was great. And I noticed that uh, Louis was also interviewed and I had never heard Louis's voice. Oh. Um, so that wow. was kind of special to hear that section. I didn't love that section of the film, which is, you know, just me being critical, I guess, from being a having spent a lot of time thinking about Bibi and her life, it does give them the credit they deserve, but it's, um, it's a bit quick. And I think it is kind of like, in a way, it was an issue, not exactly an issue, but with the Dead Lady Show, you know, Bibi and Louie were a team. They worked together. The accomplishments are shared between the two of them. So when you have a podcast or a live show or a film that's looking at the women in the field, you kind of have to make a decision like, okay, when we have someone who worked with their partner who was a man, how do we present that? And I think that's, that kind of came into a bit. But I really loved hearing about all these other great women in the field. There was Clara Rockmore, who was a theremin 
pioneer. Oh, uh, love yeah. So great. Uh, Daphne Oram, who, oh my gosh, she invented like a, um, a visual way to program her machines to make music, like just something out of the air, quite amazing. Um, wow. Pauline Oliveros, who I didn't know too much about, who developed something called Deep Listening, very cool. And Delia Derbyshire, who is no relation, right, Katie? <laughs> right. Sadly, we are, Delia and I are not related, even though she came from Coventry, where my grandparents are from, where my name, in fact, comes from. Ah. My dad did meet her, though, because they both worked for the BBC. He was a sound recordist, and she was working in the... Um, making music studio which had a really proper name that i can't think of right now can you think the of radio it? Radio, workshop? yeah no. radio phonic that's workshop. right yes <laughs> yeah my dad met her cool. uh, on a visit i guess to the the radio phonic workshop um and said she was very nice that is fascinating and it's interesting in the documentary they bring out the fact that actually the bombing of coventry during the war was very influential on her and her reaction to sound it and be, between the air air raid sirens and the all clear sounds and these various things that they really influenced the way that she approached making electronic music. That's a weird right. uh, origin story for the Doctor Who theme, which also has this weird siren. It's vibe. true. Yeah, and it took her forty days to make that. I learned in the wow. <laughs> in the documentary. We did uh, have Julie Derbyshire presented some years ago. Actually, it was the same show that I originally presented BB in, and our right. presentation was in German. There have been some people asking on Twitter if we would present Julia Derbyshire, so maybe we'll <laughs> do a different uh, re-envisioning of it someday. <laughs> um, that would be fun. But uh, yeah, we can put some links to info about the film, and you can rent it on Vimeo, uh, depending on what country you're in. We'll have that up there. Right. And there'll be more images and links on BB Baron and some clips of BB and Louise music at our website, deadladyshow.com. You can follow us on social media at Dead Ladies Show. And do please rate, share and review the show as it does help others to find our podcast. We have transcripts of many of our shows thanks to the help of our very kind Patreon supporters. Woo woo! You can become one over at patreon.com slash deadladyshowpodcast if you like. Thanks, everyone, for your support. It really means a lot. It does. The Dead Lady Show was founded by Florian Dowsens and Katie Darbisher, and the podcast is created, produced, and edited by me. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Susan. Thank you. Support for this episode of the Dead Lady Show podcast comes from the Berliner Zenart.